we should read our Bibles. As men digging for buried treasure. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of peoples according to the number of the sons of God. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Take no part in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but yet expose them. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Life's a garden, man. You gotta dig it. Hello fellow treasure hunters, welcome to the excavation site, I'm Justin, alongside me we got Ben, Steven, and Chad, we'll be your guides on this excursion, hope you brought your shovel and your compass, cause we got the map, let's dig. What's going on all my local guys and gals and long distance pals, we're back, what's going on? No, nothing really new here. Um, it's working, working the our lives away. That's pretty much what it goes through. Yeah, that's it. In a hurry to get things done. Yeah. Well, files here. Thank goodness, man. It feels so good today. I've been wearing jackets already. I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> I'd much rather be warm. <laughs> I'm stealing our, t-shirts. Yeah. We got we got our Yankee that moved down south, and now he's afraid of the cold. <laughs> True story. Oh gosh! Well, uh, we got a pretty uh, exciting episode today. Uh, we got a, another guest with us, uh, talk about their books and stuff. But uh, before we dive right in, I guess we'll open up uh, with some prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. Uh, we thank you uh, for our guest today taking time out of his busy schedule to sit with us and talk to us and dig through your word. Uh, we just pray for discernment, and we pray that uh, some uh, secrets are revealed unto us today, Father, and we get a better understanding of your word, and uh, hope this uh, message reaches uh, whoever it needs to, Father. It's in your hands. Amen. 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 Well, uh, today, very excited. Uh, one of my my favorite authors is here. Uh now, this is an introduction because not only is he an author, researcher, podcaster, and TV host, uh, he's written books uh, The Day the Earth Stands Still, The Great Inception, Bad Moon Rising, Last Clash of the Titans, Veneration, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, and his uh, latest, uh, The Second Coming of Saturn. He's the host of Skywatch TV, uh, 5 and 10, Sci Friday, and Unraveling Revelation with his wife. He's also a podcaster with uh, Gilbert House Fellowship, A View from the Bunker with Iron and Myth, and even does tours in Israel with Skywatch TV and even uh, done one with Michael Heiser a few years back. Sounds Derek, busy. Yeah, busy man. <laughs> How does he find the time? That's the question. Today we have with us Derek Gilbert. How are you doing, Derek? <laughs> it's an honor to be here. I'm doing great. Thank you. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. You made me sound a lot more important than I am. <laughs> no, you're very important. You're very oh. important, man. Well, you're no, no, no. you're doing God's work, getting a lot of uh, a lot of people turned um, back to that supernatural view. That the same way when we talk about the temple, a uh, second temple uh, Jewish period, what, the way that things were viewed back then, that really bring the Bible to life, so that we truly get everything out of it. And that's what you're doing. And that's to me, that's that's what it's all about. 
Well, you know, amen. I mean, this just started for Sharon and me back when we discovered Mike Heiser, uh, and we were led to him as we were researching material for novels that we were trying to write. Sharon, of course, has been, uh, she's had a supernatural worldview since she was a little girl. Me, I had a Star Trek worldview until uh, after we met, I think, even though I called myself a Christian. You can ask her about this sometime. Uh, we uh, had discussions early in our marriage about um, whether or not Darwinian evolution was consistent with the book of Genesis. So uh, thankfully, the Lord is patient, and uh, <laughs> the uh, Holy Spirit kind of whacked me on the side of the head with a board. And I, I, once I began reading apologetics and understanding that, uh, say, wait a minute, if the, if the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection is compelling, then why aren't you accepting Jesus' testimony of the Old Testament uh, and the events therein. Like, hmm, okay, maybe I need to rethink my worldview a little bit. And uh, so that began the journey. So these last 25 years have been a, an interesting journey, and finding Mike Heiser's work back around 2004 was uh, an integral part of that. So he he is, you know, he likes to jokingly call himself Gandalf, you know, coming to Middle <laughs> Earth and dispensing his wisdom. And uh, in, a, in a way, he's right. So we're we're just... You know, I, I guess that makes me Frodo or something. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> Frodo. Why. I don't know maybe, if I'd brag you know, about maybe, that. Maybe I'm Radagast the Brown, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Mike is an actual scholar, and, and Sharon is, is genuinely brilliant. Um, I've got pretty good reading comprehension, but, you know, they, they're smarter than I am. I'm just happy that the Lord has found a way to take this weird wiring inside my head and, and use it, because when I, I find a problem that I like to research or something I'm interested in, Sharon says, you're like a pit bull on crack. And uh, so, Man. yeah, yeah, it's, I'm the kid that would come home from school every day in the first grade. Hey mom, guess what? And, you know, just repeat to her everything I'd learned all day. And she'd just stand there at the sink trying to wash dishes and going, but God bless her. Mom put up with all of that. She instilled a love of reading in me, my dad instilled a love of solving problems, and now here we are, you know, six, even into my seventh decade, and and uh, finally doing something really productive. I think for uh, uh, with uh, eternal, eternal consequences. Amen. And that was one thing I was going to uh, ask you was, uh, uh, you know, you, Michael Heiser, and Trey Smith were three major influences on me, and that's how I first discovered you was through a Trey Smith video, and then I found your book, you know, uh, Last Clash of the Titans, and then after that, I just I had to buy every single one of them. But I was going to ask you, uh, you know, like me, it was Unseen Realm was my, you know, I guess the Matrix red-blue pill. I took the red pill to see how far the rabbit hole went. You know, I was, I was going to ask you, you know, what was your... I guess red pill event would that would it be the unseen realm also? Well, it it would have been if Mike had written it then, because we we actually have have been following Mike since uh, he began the process of writing the book. The original title was the myth that is true, and I guess the publisher decided that the, the use of the word myth in there might give the wrong impression to Christians. Okay, because a myth is something that's you know, a made-up story. It's a fairy tale. So we can't use that in the title. But we saw some of the working drafts of that. Oh, wow. As we began interviewing Mike uh, uh, for our podcast, PID Radio, 
Um, I think we just found the first interview. We, we saved all those audio archives, almost all. I think 99%. I think we found the first interview with Mike from either the fall of 2005 or spring of 2006, something like that, and just made it available on our mobile app. But um, it was actually a, uh, a book that was published online by Peter Goodgame called Against World Powers, and that's where we saw the first reference to Mike. Um, and this was at his website, redmoonrising.com. Uh, Peter had uh, written a book, what he called The Red Moon Rapture, which is sort of like a modified uh, pre-wrath references to um, Mike and also to Dr. David Roll, sort of a maverick Egyptologist, uh, led me down a, a research path, and suddenly things began to make more sense. Like, wait a minute, the Tower of Babel was real, and we've got archaeological evidence that that the Sumerians have a poem that talks about uh, the rebuilding of this 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 temple above a place called the Abyss, and uh, it was to be, a, and it even mentions the confusion of languages. And and, and wait, there, there's these these gods are real. Sharon, did you know any of this? And so we <laughs> yeah. that kind of led to a whole furious period of research and uh, as we were we we're trying to use our podcast to to market the series of novels that we were trying to write back then um, which lasted one episode okay we told people to buy our books now what do we do okay you know we make programs telling people about the stuff that inspires what we do okay and that led to interviewing people like Mike Kaiser and L.A. Marzulli and and so on and so on uh, which led to Tom Horn and and you know 15 years later we're in the Ozarks working with Tom anyway um the uh, uh the, the, the this this was kind of an eye-opening thing uh cuz I was raised like most Christians here in America that uh, taught that the gods of the pagans around ancient Israel were were their imaginary friends yeah you know that mm -hmm. uh, the idols were just uh, you know blocks of wood and stone and oh they were just too primitive to know that they weren't real you know, ignoring the fact that the Egyptians and the Romans and the, and the Greeks and the, the Hittites and uh, the, the Sumerians had these amazing civilizations where they were able to uh, build these these massive structures that we can't even recreate, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, we've just recently discovered within the last couple of years that the Amorites, the Amorites who founded Babylon around the time of Abraham um, had discovered trigonometry. Okay, so these were not stupid people. Mm -hmm. They weren't sacrificing things that were precious and dear to them, uh, not just their livestock, but their children in many cases, because they were too primitive to understand these uh, gods they worshiped weren't real. No, they were doing it because they were getting something out of the transaction. So uh, to find somebody who is a, a credentialed scholar making this case, and saying, and, oh yeah, by the way, that explains why this, 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 this and happened in the Bible and why Jesus did this here at Caesarea Philippi. Oh, suddenly things began to open. Of course, that was another uh, eye-opening moment when I heard an interview with uh, Dr. Judd Burton on the old uh, Future Quake podcast talking about Caesarea Philippi, the Grotto of Pan, mm -hmm. and why Jesus went there to ask Peter, who do you say that I am? It's because that's where the gates of hell were. And the rock in which he would build the church is that 9,000-foot mountain right behind him where the god El lived with Like, okay, <laughs> suddenly that all made sense. And now we've just been taking the, since coming to work for, for Tom Horn and being blessed to 
earn our livings now by doing this kind of research and writing, um, we have the time to dig into the academic research by mainly secular researchers and just pull out all of this information that these scholars know. They just don't have a biblical framework to process it. And uh, that's what's resulted in the, uh, the books that we've uh, been blessed to publish through Defender Publishing these last seven years. Yeah, that's amazing. Because stuff like that, I mean, you know, like the old saying, I've always heard people say, you know, find a job you love. You'll never work another day in your life. Amen. Yeah. And you also have all the radio background, too. So, I mean, you know, God is uh, lining these dominoes up for you. And we're he glad did, he yeah. did. Well, you know, I think all of us have that experience. You get to a point in your life and you, you, you think back and it's like, okay, at the time, this seemed like a really awful thing, the worst thing ever. But now I can see why he allowed me to go through this. Yeah. It was preparation, training. Well, agreed, 100%. I think that, you know, I look back at a lot of times throughout my life when I wish I would have done something different or I wish I could take something back, but you wouldn't be the person you are today if you had had those experiences. So uh, at the same time, I wouldn't be sitting in this chair right here talking to you right now if I hadn't had those life experiences that uh, God, you know, he doesn't make bad things happen, but he takes all the bad things and allows something good to come out of them. And our human experience with regret and pain and sorrow, remorse, that shapes us into who we are. And the fact that we, we know that we've only got a limited lifespan. Um, yeah, I mentioned seventh decade. Okay, I turned 60 this year. Uh, and I'm not, you know, morbid about this at all. But, uh, you know, I, I recognize now I've got fewer spins around the sun ahead of me than I've got behind me. That just instills a sense of urgency because there's more to do and I have to get busy about it. You know, other people, okay, maybe they feel like, you know, I've earned my rest. Fine. Whatever God calls you to that, that's fine. My feeling is, is the opposite. While I've got energy and strength, I've got things, information that I want to communicate. And, uh, because he's instilled in me this <laughs> desire, you know, inside the 60 year old body is still this one, you know, this, this six year old kid saying, Hey, guess what? Guess yeah. what? Uh, and wanting to share that, um, because of the joy and the excitement at finding these these bits of gold. I, I love the intro to your show because it's exactly right. There's these nuggets of gold in his word. Yes. And because of apologetics and the work of learned men and women over the last 2,000 years who's devoted their lives to the study of his word, we can know that we know that we know that this word has been accurately transcribed and preserved for us. Unlike every other faith out there with the exception of our jewish brothers and sisters you know i'm sorry you know god bless muslims but there was no one else in the cave with muhammad to corroborate what he supposedly heard from the angel jibreel yeah mm -hmm. nobody to corroborate the teachings of the buddha etc 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 but paul in first corinthians 15 makes a point of writing to the church at corinth hey look Resurrection is the central, the single most important fact about this doctrine. If Jesus isn't raised, then we're all still in our sins. We're all doomed, in other words. And here's the good news. He, the risen Christ, that is, first appeared to Peter, and then to James, and then to the rest of the 12, and then to 500 others. Most of them are still alive. So you don't believe me, go ask around. Send mm -hmm. someone to Jerusalem and ask around, because there are still witnesses walking the streets today. There were witnesses. 
And my dad, who was an engineer by training for his entire life, this is what convinced him, I'm sure of it. And I, in fact, I know it is, because we talked about it a couple of weeks before he passed. The only reason Christianity survived past the end of the first century, despite the persecution of the Roman Empire and the Sanhedrin, was that there were too many people who'd seen the risen Christ. Too many people knew what had really happened for them to kill the faith. Amen. Yeah, nobody's going to die for something they just made up. Exactly. Yeah. So, A lot of people will die for what they think is true, but if they know it's a lie... Yeah, they're uh, not. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. They're just gonna, when the blades to the throat, you're going to crack. Okay, all right, we made it all up. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like how Ben said we've done an episode on uh, Jesus and we uh, talking about, you know, how atheists, you know, be like, well, he, Jesus looked back at the Torah, so it was easy for him to ch checklist all those things off to tell people he was the Messiah. And then Ben was like, so what? When he was on the cross, he was just—he's like, I made it this far, guys. Please, don't break nothing. Don't break Please no don't bones. break nothing. You'll mess yeah. it all up. <laughs> and he was able to arrange the city he was born in. Right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, uh, I guess uh, uh, diving into some of your your books and your work, uh, if you guys don't mind. Yeah, you're going to jump right in. My my, my favorite, Last Clash of the Titans. Mm. Loved that book. Thank and, you. And. But I was always a big history nerd, you know what I mean? So, like, you know, in school when we were reading about the, you know, the the pantheon of, of, of Greece, you know, and Zeus and all the other gods, the demigods, you know, and even when we got to Egypt, you know, the same, you know, structure and and how you correlated all that with a biblical view that just that really opened the can of worms. And like you said, it really got me diving in with this new set of glasses on seeing it all and then it was just like oh it's here it's here oh, it's everywhere you know but i love how it's the whole deuteronomy 32 genesis 6 worldview and we've kind of touched on that with our listeners but uh if you could just uh you know give us uh basically i guess just like your overall view of that book and how you connected uh the the other gods of the nations with the whole you know deuteronomy 32 fallen angels worldview well it's pretty easy to do because that was the uh, view of the the jews of jesus day and uh the early church they understood that the fallen angels the, that their the gods of their pagan neighbors were real but uh, that they were fallen angels so um you know it it is surprising to us today uh, because, again, we in America, we in the Western world since the Enlightenment have this uh, default belief that uh, if, we, if it doesn't fit with a scientific worldview, or really scientistic is, is more accurate, then it, it can't possibly re be real. But our, our friend Guy Malone, who's uh, the guy behind the, uh, the famous uh, uh, Ancient of Days Bible UFO conferences in Roswell, said, look, the price of admission to our club is believing that a Jewish carpenter rose himself from the dead 2,000 years ago. Why is it that we try to make everything else make more sense after that? <laughs> I, I mean, and why is it that we, we believe ourselves so much smarter than the early church theologians? So when you look at Jesus, who literally in, in Matthew 12, when he was confronted by the, the scribes and Pharisees and said, uh, uh, you're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which means Baal, the prince. Jesus said, if Satan casts out demons by his own power, how will his kingdom stand? 
So, okay, Baal equals Satan. All right, yeah. now, wait a minute. Christians, we're, we're willing to acknowledge Satan is real. Why are we saying, and Jesus said, Satan, Baal, what, what, why, why do we then try to allegorize this? Okay, well, it's just a type of Baal. He's just a, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol. It's a, it, it can't be real because they don't exist. But Jesus said, I know where you live, you know, in Revelation 2, talking about the Pergamum, where Satan dwells, where Satan's seat is. And that's a reference to the great altar of Zeus. Zeus was just the Greek form of Baal. Yep. He's the storm god. He's the king of the pantheon. It's like, oh, okay. Um, again, was Jesus misinformed? Was was he too primitive to understand that Jupiter, that Satan, that that uh, Zeus, that Baal were just not real? Um, because that's not what he says in the Bible. When you look at the Old Testament, Psalm 82 is like a courtroom scene in heaven where God takes his place in the midst of the divine council and says, though you, though you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So it's not that difficult when you start from there. The, and, and, and again, the Deuteronomy 32 reference, when God divided the nations, he numbered them according to the number of the sons of God, which in Hebrew is a phrase that always refers to supernatural entities. Um, the, the belief that most theologians have today, because again, the, the default belief by, by Christian theologians is that these entities aren't real, they don't really exist, but that denies what the actual Hebrew words mean. It's telling Israelis they don't know their own language. Yeah. I think yeah, that, we know that's what you say it means, but that's not what it means. That's not what you meant. <laughs> I think I think a big part of that, and a big uh, the part that made me kind of, and it it's something that I always, even as a kid, I had such a hard time with was when during the Exodus, how many times did the Israelites fall away? And I it it finally hit me and to so think that easy. Well, well, you you you'd think that, but the whole thing is they just walked through the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, they're going to turn and worship somebody else. They're not going to do that if they have just seen somebody miraculous do something, unless they see one of these other lowercase g gods are able to do something else, some other, uh, just like they saw in Egypt, right? When um, the Pharaoh's magicians, you know, turn their rods into snakes. Pharaoh's magicians can make uh, water into blood. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians can bring frogs out of the Nile. When they can do those same things, you can see how they would fall and say well look look what Baal did this time you know and it might not say ex exactly that this deity did this in the and in, in, during the exodus but there's no other way to explain that the Israelites fell away so fast and so often during that exodus after seeing unbelievable things that happened in Egypt I mean unbelievable and the, things and it was the understanding in the ancient world that uh, gods had territories and uh, th this was one of the things that kind of opened our eyes when we started down this road during our weekly Bible study, uh, getting to Exodus 14, and God tells Moses and the Israelites to turn back, and we're like, wait a minute, that was was that in the movie? Because I, I don't remember Charlton Heston turning around. <laughs> yeah. uh, they kept running until they got to the Red Sea, yeah. and then they were pinned, and and God had to rescue them. No, and Pharaoh's God army was after him. You know, why would you yeah. stop and wait? <laughs> it was spiritual warfare. Back. And and then said, here, camp at this place facing Baal's Zephon. Like. Wait a minute, Baal's and why is Baal in Egypt? Because he's a Canaanite god, and what's a Zephon anyway? Well, that was a period of history, or just following the period of history, scholars called the Second Intermediate Period, where the uh, an Amorite group of people called the the, the Egyptians called the Hyksos, meaning the uh, rulers of foreign lands, controlled the Nile Delta, and of course their chief god is Baal, who became god of the 
chief god of the pantheon by defeating the god of the sea called Yom in single combat. So, you know, God of Israel, Yahweh says, okay, watch this. And he parts the Red Sea, demonstrating who really has mastery over the sea and then destroys the chariots of the uh, the Pharaoh who tried to follow. But uh, Baal Zaphon, Zaphon is a reference to Mount Zaphon, which is the place where Baal's palace was located. It's up in Turkey near the border with Syria. It's like, oh, okay, so what, what, what else is it? This is what led to the research. What else is in the Bible that makes sense when you start looking at what the pagan neighbors believed around ancient Israel? Oh, wait, when they entered the wilderness of sin in the Bible, that's the name of the moon god of the, the, the Amorites. The, it's it called Sin, is how it's pronounced. And Mount Sinai is actually, according to the Jewish encyclopedia, derived from the name of the moon god. So they were in the wilderness of Sin at Mount Sinai, and uh, God is basically saying, no, 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 it's, it's not the mountain of God or the mountain of the gods. Actually, Har Elohim can mean mountain of the gods. Uh, it's, it's, you know, Yahweh is saying, this is my mountain. And I don't care whose wilderness this is. These are my people. But yet the Israelites began to panic as soon as they entered the, uh, uh, the wilderness of Sin. The, uh, the book of Exodus describes it taking place on the 15th day of the second month. Why is that detail relevant? Because in a 30-day lunar calendar, that's the night when the moon is full. Okay? And the night of no moon is the, is the 30th. The night of the new moon is the first. So the moon is full. They're entering the territory of the moon god when he's at full power. We're doomed! And that's the next morning when manna begins to fall for like 40 years it begins to fall it only stops when they cross the river and get ready to attack jericho which is named for the amorite moon god it's a different uh, dialect yarik is the name of the moon god in amorite seen as akkadian so uh th there are things like that all through the bible that suddenly begin to make sense um like, why did they march in a circle around Jericho? Uh, it just, a, a lot of different things that make sense when you start r looking at the practices of the cults around ancient Israel. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really astonishing. And it's clear when you read things like the, uh, the Septuagint translation of the Bible, which was prepared by Jewish scholars from uh, older Hebrew texts. It's a uh, an alternate version of the Old Testament. It was the version available to the early church, uh, translated into Greek by about 200 BC. So 200 years before Jesus, Jewish scholars translated this. And uh, there are places where words like Rephaim are translated as Titan, the names of the old gods of the Greeks. The uh, Jewish religious scholars in the centuries before Jesus understood the connection between the old uh, the sons of God from Genesis 6 and the titans of Greek mythology. Yeah, even when you go through the Pantheon, you know, I mean, Her Hercules, you know, and, and all these other, you know, now that are turning into, you know, cartoons and comic books. And they all turned into stuff, heroes. They're all, you know, the what world. are they? Yeah. The, the gods came down and oh, bred yeah. with human Better women and, and made these men of renown, mighty men First of old. Jackson and the Olympians, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you could run that back. It was it Wonder Woman or a Princess Diana, and all the. I mean, it just goes right down the list. Thor, yeah, Thor. Loki, yeah. all these guys, same thing. Yeah, and there's some. Thor truth is just that. the Norse version of uh, of Baal and Jupiter and Zeus. So, <laughs> sorry, Marvel. Yeah. Thor is Satan. Yeah. <laughs> and I love how too uh, in your book how uh, you should drop the mic right there when you say that. That's no, like, these sorry. are too expensive to Boom. drop. <laughs> 
but how you, you referenced the uh, the finger puppets, you know, and I, I've used that a few times. You know, I've stole it from you, but I think I've gave you credence when I have. <laughs> Give Sharon credit; she's the one who came up with that, actually. But I love that. Uh, you know, it's like it's one hand, but you got five fingers. There might be a different puppet on each finger, but it's the same hand. Even some of the the way that they're depicted, like with a lightning bolt in their hand, or you know, some of mm -hmm. these deities across, they all look the same through each of the pantheons. They have a lot of similar characteristics. And even like with the Abkalu, you know, I mean, Satan and his fallen realm, or no matter what time it is or generation, they're putting the, the positive spin on it. Well, no, we're the good guys, you know. Sure. Yeah. The Apkalu, you know, we're, we're the ones that after your mean God flooded and took away all your knowledge, we, we sent forth through the flood to give you back this knowledge because we are, you know, we are your protectors and we're the good guys. Same thing with Marvel today. Oh, Marvel's horrible. Well, it's it, that's a very long uh, process that's been ongoing with Marvel and DC, especially since the uh, 1960s. There's a very famous uh, writer and um, artist named Jack Kirby, who really drew on the uh, cosmologies, the religions of the uh, the ancient world, to develop characters for uh, uh, for those those two companies. And uh, uh, in fact, a, a fellow who's uh, been a guest on my podcast a few times, Christopher Knowles, wrote a book some years back that uh, really explores how comics have tried to repackage the old gods. It's called "Our Gods Wear Spandex." Yeah, I'm going to check that out. Well, with uh, the other one I had was uh, The Great Inception, and that, that was another great one. And uh, and we've kind of touched on it here and there in different episodes, but we've not really went, you know, full money on it. But it's like, you know, the whole theme of the, the Battle of the Mountains. You know, some are actual physical mountains. You know, some are man-made, and, and some, you know, are what they call cosmic geography. Uh, could you explain that, like, and, you know, break down some of the, the mountains and how they're important and uh, what uh, cosmic geography actually is? Yeah, Mike Heiser's really done a lot of teaching on that. And, again, cosmic geography is, uh, say, the probably best example is at the Mountain of Baal, Mount Safan. It's uh, located uh, on the Mediterranean coast near where Turkey and uh uh, the border between Turkey and Syria is located. It's very close to Antioch, ancient Antioch. The, that location, because it was the home of Baal's palace, was so important that the name Zephon became the word for the compass point north in Hebrew. Now, in the other Semitic languages like Akkadian uh, that are similar to, uh, to Hebrew in the ancient world, the word for north is Simal, which is the word for left. For example, the, Akka the, uh, the Amorites had two main tribal divisions. The Amorites were tribal just like the Israelites. There a lot of similarities between the Amorites and the Israelites. The uh, Binu Samal, the sons of the left hand, were the northerners. That's where they pastured their flocks, basically, on the north side of the great bend of the Euphrates. The Binu Yamina, sons of the right hand, those are the southerners. That's where you get the name Benjamin, son of the right hand, southerner. Oh, wow. So... Yeah, I mean, there's some scholars that said, oh, clearly the uh, Israelites must have been Amorite because the Benjaminites came from the Amorite. No, no, it's just a popular name back in the day. So, but again, amongst the Hebrews, the word for north became Zaphon rather than Samal because that's the direction of Baal's palace. But more than that, it's cosmic north. It's the, super, it's the direction from which supernatural threats 
outcome. And uh, I think that's one of the key points that uh, I tried to make in uh, Last Clash of the Titans with the uh, the uh, analysis of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the War of Gog and Magog, because that phrase, Tzaphon, is used several times in those chapters. Yarkate Tzaphon is usually translated uttermost parts of the north. Um, you also see it in Isaiah 14, the, the heights of the north, sides of the north, there are some modern translations that understand this is a reference not to the direction, but to cosmic north. Uh, Isaiah 14, you want to establish your, your mount of assembly on the heights of Mount Saphon. Well, yeah, that's Baal for you. That's Satan. He wants to, you know, be the king of the king of the world, Ma. Well, that's kind of what's in view here with these uh, these mountains. It it struck me as I was trying to get come up with an idea for a presentation at uh, the 2017 Prophecy Watchers Conference, uh, 2016 maybe. Um, anyway, it was uh, on, uh, it, it struck me that almost all of the major supernatural encounters in the Bible, or uh, some of the most significant, took place on or around mountains. Um, Eden, for example, in Ezekiel 28 is described as a mountain. Yep. So the rebel from Eden, who... Um, by the way, in my most recent book, I argue is not Satan, but Saturn, two different entities. So Lucifer is not Satan. He is Saturn, uh, was kicked off of God's mountain and out of his garden. Yes, Eden is a garden, a garden on God's mountain. So that was uh, pretty significant. Uh, and it, this, this, I think, is why in the ancient world it was understood that the gods all lived on mountains because they're remote, they're pristine, they're beautiful. Um, us humans haven't gotten our grubby hands on them and messed them up. Um, and so that, that, was the, that was the dwelling place of, uh, of mountains. But oddly, it, it seems that uh, there are some mountains that were more special than others. I mean, even as, as early as the time of... Uh, uh, Abraham, and this is probably remembering even older stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh sends him and uh, his friend uh, Enkidu on a quest to destroy the, mon the monster Humbaba. And uh, he is the guardian of the cedar forest. And after they kill this monster, they uh, penetrate the, uh, the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. Well, this is located, according to that epic, uh, Mount Hermon. Now, Babylon is a long walk from Mount Hermon. I mean, the uh, the exiles returning from Babylon in the time of Nehemiah took four months to walk that far. So it's not like these are next door. The other thing is that Mount Hermon is not one of the 100 tallest mountains on earth. It's the tallest mountain anywhere near Israel by far. But uh, if you go east from ancient Sumer, into Iran. You've got a lot of mountains in Iran that are way taller than Mount Hermon. So what is it about Mount Hermon that's so special? Don't know, but we do know that that's where, according to the book of First Enoch, the sons of God, the watchers led by Shemiyaza, descended and made their mutual pact to corrupt humanity by taking human women and uh, teaching us things we weren't supposed to know. It's pretty clear that uh, Jesus and God considered Mount Hermon really important because it shows up again and again just sprinkled throughout scripture and every reference is a reference to f with with supernatural meaning to it i mean just they're like they're a location that we're yeah yes yes um 
like, like there are there are certain places that we know of today where you make mention to a certain location and it, it's connected to some type of activity. You know what they're talking about. You don't have to be explicit. Yeah. Um, that that was the case with Mount Hermon. Um, you've got, uh, of course, uh, Mount Carmel, where you had the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, uh, who uh, I, I show in the book were more than likely prophets of uh, Hercules. Um, you've got Mount uh, Sinai, the Mount, uh, mountain of the gods, Har Elohim. Um, you've got uh, the mountain where, where Muhammad got his alleged revelation, Jebel al-Nur. Uh, again, that took place in a mountain. We think that mountain was actually... Um, in the vicinity of Petra in Jordan. But we need to do more research on that. Uh, and, it, you know, you've got uh, the mountains of Ararat where Noah's Ark came down and uh, the artificial mountain of Babel, yep. which was an attempt to build an abode of the gods. So, um, yeah, it seemed like all of these co connections to uh, the, the, between the, the physical realm and the spirit realm revolve around a mountain. And, of course, the whole thing comes to a head at uh, Armageddon, which is clumsy transliter transliteration from Hebrew into Greek and then back into English. Yeah, the Harmagade. Yes, I, I the love, I, I yeah. probably butchered it out my southern accent, but uh, I remember. Well, I don't speak Hebrew either, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, Harmagade. Harmoed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, in the middle of that Moed is a. Uh, uh, glottal stop. This is a, a character in, in Hebrew called Ayin. It looks like a reverse apostrophe, but there's no corresponding sound or letter in Greek or in English. So when John tried to write Har Moed, which means Mount of Assembly, like in Isaiah 14, you know, the the rebel wants to build his, create his Mount of Assembly or Mount of the Congregation on the, the heights of Mount Zephon. Um, the Mount of Assembly is where the final battle will be fought. And uh, John wrote it, it, he took the closest character he could find in Greek to the Ayin, which is uh, Gamma. And so then English speakers translating the Greek book of Revelation into English said, oh, Gamma, okay, that must be the Hebrew character Gimel, which means it's Har Magidon. Ah, the final battle will be fought at Megiddo, which is 50 miles away from Jerusalem. And, and it's a valley, ain't it? Or a plane. It's valley. Yeah, that's yeah. the other problem. There's no yeah. mountain. Where's the mountain? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, the, the Mount of Assembly is God's holy mountain, Zion, the Temple Mount. So, and that, that eliminates the conflicts. Like, if the final battle's at Megiddo, why does Jesus in Zechariah 14 land on the Mount of Olives, which is like right across the valley from the Temple Mount? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 no, the battle's 50 miles away. No. <laughs> It, it was a bad transliteration from Hebrew to Greek to English. And a, a scholar by the name of Charles Torrey solved this back in the 1930s, and yet you still have very respected prophecy teachers trying to say, teach us today that the, the final battle will be fought at Megiddo. No, it will not. It'll be fought at Jerusalem, just where Zechariah and Joel and John put it. It's crazy. I got one random question. Sorry. You were talking about where Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. I was wondering if you ever looked at Ron Wyatt's work. And did, do you believe that that potentially was a site where the uh, Ark actually landed or came to rest? Or I, I really haven't looked at what Ron Wyatt did specifically about the, uh, uh, about the Ark. I, a friend of ours, uh, Aaron Judkins, was uh, part of that uh, documentary a few years ago called Finding Noah. Mm -hmm. And they climbed up there and they were having some stuff done, some stuff tested. And I don't know what the results of the tests were. So um, 
Well, don't know. What, what I find really compelling, and I kind of draw on some of Judd Burton's research for the second coming of Saturn um, in, 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 to, to bolster some other research I've done. Um, I think this whole practice of summoning spirits from the netherworld, which is uh, all throughout the Bible, uh, continues to this very day, um, can be traced back archaeologically to the Ararat Plain in the middle of the 5th millennium B.C. I mean, this is long before um, writing was invented. Writing was invented, uh, the earliest we've discovered anyway, dates to about 3100 B.C., just after the collapse of the Uruk civilization. In other words, the fall of Babel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a civilization called the uh, the Kura Araxis civilization, K-U-R-A-A-R-A-X-E-S. And those are the names of the two mountains that run on either side of the Caucasus Mountains. And the civilization can be traced very accurately because they made a unique style of pottery, unique coloring, unique type of burnishing or whatever. I'm not an expert in pottery, but uh, I'll trust the experts who say they can trace that civilization to this place, the middle of, it's about 4,500 BC. And from there, they spread out and around the outer edge of the Fertile Crescent down into the Holy Land. And just within the last 20 years, a husband and wife archaeologists from UCLA identified them as the biblical Horites, the Hurrians, and uh, found their necromantic ritual pit at a site in, in northern Syria called uh, Urkesh, which was known as the, the home of their chief god, Kumarbi. Well, Kumarbi is Saturn, Kronos, Baal Haman, El, Dagon, Molech, same god by different names. But key part of the worship is this big pit where you'd have to dig, you'd go down into this pit, which uh, I think when it was first dug, they estimate down to about 40 feet. They could only get down about 25 feet because they were concerned about the stability of the walls. You would sacrifice a small animal like a, a piglet or a, a lamb or a puppy, and then you would uh, scribe a magic circle on the floor and summon these entities from the netherworld. This was going back to probably 3500 B.C., and the practice continued into the biblical period when Saul visited the owner of a ritual pit at Endor. A threshing floor. And, and you've got the threshing floor, which is another type of... In fact, I was just reading a paper yesterday, in fact, on the idea of the threshing floor as a point of contact between this realm and the next. So you've got the threshing floor as a high place between this world and the next, but then you've also got the ritual pit. And Judd Burton's research not only then connects that, uh, that same region where these people who seem to have invented this practice of digging a pit and summoning spirits from the netherworld to the origin of the word uh, Rephaim. The, he basically connected it to other similar words in Eurasian languages, like uh, the, the R followed by a, uh, a vowel seems to be a common term for, well, say royalty, uh, rex, regal, and rephaim. Um, and uh, he said that by tracing these, the, the phonemes, the little pieces of language back as far as you go, you find that it originates between the Black Sea and the Caucasus Sea. Well, guess what? That's the same region that the Hurrians come from, the Horites, the Ararat Plain, the, the land below the mountains where Noah's Ark, somewhere where Noah's Ark came to rest. The people who were on the Ark came down. Stories were told, apparently, about these old gods who once walked among us, but then they were punished and sent down to the netherworld. We have to summon them and bring them back up. Well, interestingly, the Tower of Babel, if David Roll is correct, the uh, Egyptologist I mentioned earlier, and I think he is, that uh, 
the Tower of Babel was actually the temple of the god Enki at the city of Eridu. Yes. And that was uh, the uh, Eobzu, the, the House of the Abyss. I think that that was, a, that was an attempt to try to reconnect and make connection again, not with gods from above, but below. the gods yeah. from below, the Abzu, the Abyss. And it had to be something bigger than just a tall structure for God to intervene. That's one thing I always thought was striking when you try to talk to some people about that. And they're like, no, they just thought they could build a tall building in heaven. It's like, we got tall buildings now and God ain't knocked them down. You know, it, right. it was, it's they, the they, purpose of the it's a stargate structure that they or were portal. To. They were trying to let these guys back out again. And I can tell you, because I was in the military and I did two tours in Iraq, and I, we drove past where they said the Tower of Babel was. And there's some creepy vibes out there. I wondered about that. I wondered about that. In fact, started writing a story at some point years ago based on that, but I didn't have enough experience, knowledge, or theology at that point to try to try to make it up. But uh, yeah, it was, did, you ever, did you ever see the, the great ziggurat of Ur? I'm, if I did, I wouldn't know what I was looking at. I, I do got one question, kind of follow up to what you just said. And when we, we've speculated a whole bunch of times and we talk about, and you just brought up the Rephaim, which I think is really cool. But when we're talking about, um, you know, the, the giants uh, showing up again after the flood. And um, I know that's one of the big questions. One of the million dollar questions is how did they, um, show back up after, you know, God was sent to, to wipe them out. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, these temples they've made, um, so that an earthly being could, um, reach out and be with a God and, uh, you know, have intercourse with a God. And is that a possible way of how those giants came back? Is there, was there some, uh, truth to that? Um, were they actually like like who was it that we just talked about it yesterday? With the uh, King Og's bed, how the measurements. Uh, I read somewhere that the the readers when they read that, it, it struck a light bulb to them that you know when they were in captivity in Babylon that there was a bed like that and it was a, a sexual right bed where they would uh, have the gods embody them and then they would procreate trying to make uh, the Nephilim again. Yeah, that was a, uh, uh, a really fascinating discovery from the temple of, of, uh, of uh, Marduk, the chief god of Babylon. Um, within the last couple of decades, they, they found that uh, there was an inscription that described the, the size of that bed, and it matches exactly four cubits by six cubits, the size of Og's bed. So it appears that the reason Moses mentions the size of Og's bed in Deuteronomy is not that Og was... Um, what uh, uh 18 feet, foot tall <laughs> yeah like 13 feet tall uh it's just the set he's connecting og who was an amorite king and the last of the remnant of the rephaim to the uh, amorite kingdom of babylon uh, the amorites founded babylon there is no ethnicity called babylonian that'd be like calling me a chicagoite because yeah. i was born there you know uh, no i'm sorry i'm german swedish english uh welsh and a b- bunch of other things but that was the reason for the link. Og was part of that occult system founded by the Amorites, the, Bab- the occult system of Babylon. Um, how did they 
come back again? That, that's a good question, and, and let me, I, I could do an entire presentation on this, I think. Um, first of all, the short answer is it's possible there was a second incursion. As Dr. Heiser points out in Genesis 6, where it says uh, the giant, giants were in the earth, in, or the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And, and after. after that, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men, the word translated when can also mean whenever. So this may not have been just a one-shot deal. Secondly, though, is I, I'm not sure that the, the giants of the Old Testament were as big as some would like them to be. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the oldest Hebrew texts about Goliath, for example, uh, do not make him um, six cubits in a span it's four cubits in a span. That's a difference between, say, six cubits in a span is like nine foot nine inches. Four in a span is six foot nine. Now, that's still really big because the average Israelite, and I looked this up, the average Israelite in the time of, time of David and Goliath is about five foot four. So, you know, imagine going up against a guy who's like seven foot and has been trained as a warrior since he was a youth. When you read that account between um, the, the confrontation between David and Goliath, Saul didn't say, David, don't go. He's like nine feet tall. Are you crazy? No, he's like, he has been a warrior since his youth. He's a trained warrior, and you're just a shepherd kid. So, yeah, he's also really big. He's six foot nine, but uh, it, it's not like he's 13 feet tall or, or whatever. And they're no they're, different than us, too. You know what I mean? Like if, if one of us, you know, which, I mean, I'm six foot tall— but if I was to walk up to Shaquille O'Neal, right, he's right. a giant. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, but but here's here's the other thing that was really interesting uh, as we were digging into this. Like, okay, what what is the deal with the Rephaim? What who are the Anakim? What is the deal with these things? And why were they so important for God to have the Israelites wipe them out? Because it's clear that Og of Bashan, who is the last of the remnant of the Rephaim had to be the first military target. God had them walk all the way north to Bashan, which when you're, you're making maybe five miles a day, which uh, is about all you'd get when you've got flocks and herds that need to be fed and watered, and you've got elderly people, and you've got little kids, and you're not like an army on the march where you're going to make like 15 or 20 miles a day. Yeah, i got to go to the bathroom, Daddy. Are we yeah, there yet? <laughs> it's, like, it's like two months extra to your journey just to go there and take out this one guy. And that doesn't count the time it took to, uh, you know, fight the army of uh, Sihon of Heshbon on the way. So then they did that, and they come back across. Then you cross over. And then when you read the summary of Joshua's war of conquest, it's clear that it was against the Anakim. The Anakim were the target. What was the deal with those guys? And then, uh, and of course, the summary is that only in... Uh, in uh, in uh, Gaza and Ashdod, did some remain? Well, okay, that's where that's where uh, uh, and and Gath, because that's where Goliath and his buddies were from. But in Second Samuel twenty one now. Anyway, the uh, chapter where David is getting older and he almost gets taken out by uh, some of the uh, the uh, Philistine giants. Uh, there we go. Second Samuel 21. It was war against the Philistines and Israel. David went out and Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, etc. And there were a couple of other guys. One, uh, uh, Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants. 
And that's pointed to as evidence that to see the Nephilim were still in the land in the time of David. The thing is this, the word translated descendant in 2 Samuel 21 is not ben or bene, which literally means blood descendant of. It's yeladeh, yeladeh. The phrase is uh, yeladeh ha rafa, descendant of the rafa, except that it doesn't mean blood descendant. It means one who is a member of a group into which one is consecrated or initiated. There's a very interesting paper written by a guy named uh, Conrad LaRue, well-known scholar of the ancient Near East. Um, and again, because it doesn't fit the narrative, uh, a lot of folks just kind of, uh, yeah, that, that doesn't mean what it means. When you, re you look up that phrase in the Old Testament, which we can do now thanks to Bible software, we don't have to do it the hard way like scholars years ago had to do, actually searching through, you know, dictionaries and, and uh, 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 it, it, with paper. Um, yeah, Logos has us spoiled. <laughs> it, it, tr it truly no does, doubt. but it, it also means we don't have any excuses anymore. Yeah. Uh, the, the phrase is never, ever used of a literal genetic blood descendant. But the fact that it means one who is a member of a group into which one is consecrated or initiated, I think is even more interesting. Because ha-rafa, well, rafa, that's the singular form of rephaim. And here's the other thing, a credit to uh, Brian Gadawa for pointing this out in his, uh, oh, his novel uh, uh, in the Chronicles of Nephilim, uh, David, uh, David Victorious, I I'm sorry, Brian, I've forgotten the title, but it's the novel about David. Uh, Ishbi Benob, okay, an odd name, all right? In Hebrew, pronounced Ishvi Benov, Benov. The Benob, you know, they'll, they'll try to you know, translate that word and, and not recognize that it's actually two words. It's not Benob, it's Ben-Ov. Ov is the Hebrew word translated medium, it's actually the word that means the necromantic ritual pit that I was talking about before that the Canaanites got from the Hurrians, the Horites. This practice of summoning gods from the netherworld, which is exactly what the Ove of Endor, the medium of Endor, did when Saul came to visit her the night before he was killed by the Philistines. Samuel came up from the earth, which freaked her out because she was expecting her familiar spirit, not Samuel. Yeah. So Ishbi is the son of a medium probably engaged in this cult of venerating the Rephaim, which we know exists now. It's only been acknowledged and recognized by scholars for about the last 40 years. So what you got here in Goliath and his colleagues among the Philistines is an elite warrior cult that worships the demonic spirits of the Rephaim. They were probably like the ancient world's equivalent of the Viking berserkers. Right. And that's a good segue because my next thing I was going to mention was your book, Veneration. And it goes all into that. You know, yes. explain yes. what that term, you know, means, you know, and how uh, in your book you talk about how they practice that and, and Bashan about the Rephaim, fallen angels, underworld, you know, the whole even relates to the Psalms 22, you know, the, the, the bulls of Bashan, the travelers and, and all that. Just, could you go in a little bit more detail with that? Sure. Like talk about what they would do there and the rights and the, the traveling and. And, and awesome. I want to make clear to you, to uh, your, your 
listeners that uh, w when I get passionate here, it's not I'm not getting angry. I'm just getting excited about this information. Oh, yeah. So if you can't see my face and realize I'm not I'm not getting angry about this. I'm I'm just excited about it. Um, veneration is just a, a word that means uh, worship, and uh, we we had uh, originally put forward the the idea of calling the book "Profiling the Dead," but uh, Tom. Horn you know, always comes up with better titles. Said, "No, no, veneration." Like, yeah, okay. And then uh, Jeffrey Martis, who did the cover art, came up with something that looked like uh, Game of Thrones. You know? Yeah, that was pretty yeah. wicked cover. Yeah, yeah. Jeffrey is our secret weapon. He's awesome. This was a cult that um, th this cult of the Rephaim and Rephaim in the Bible is used two separate ways. First, in the time of Abraham, the Rephaim tribes. Um, occupied the area east of the Jordan River. So what later became the kingdom of Og of Bashan, uh, the kingdom of Ammon, uh, Moab, and Edom, uh, those kingdoms that were always at war with Israel east of the Jordan River. Um, but the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites came along um, following the time of uh, Jacob and Esau, and they uh, basically cleared those Rephaim tribes out, which is why Og in the time of Moses, was the last of the remnant of the Rephaim. By the time of Moses, after Moses, the uh, the Rephaim were uh, was the term applied to the uh, the spirits of the uh, the mighty men who were of old. This is kind of translated out of our English Bibles because the word is is there in the Hebrew, but it's usually translated as the dead or the departed or the deceased or the shades, and so we miss the context. Uh, and again, it's only because it's only since about 1980 or so that scholars have recognized the importance of the Rephaim to the cults, uh, the religious beliefs of the, the people around ancient Israel. The, the Amorites, who really dominated the, uh, the lands of the Bible from Babylon to uh, Antioch to northern Egypt, basically everything that today is Syria, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, uh, northern Egypt, southern Turkey, was under the control of Amorites from about the time of Abraham, roughly 2000 BC, down to about the time of the Exodus. It's around 1446 BC. That was basically that was the age of the Amorites. And after that, they started calling themselves or were being called Phoenicians. So they didn't go away, they just uh, picked up a different name. Um, uh, the Carthaginians of the time of uh, Rome, you know, Hannibal, uh, was, uh, a, he was basically an Amorite, just uh, in, in the more modern era. They had a monthly practice where they believed that if they didn't summon their ancestors by name, their dead ancestors, on the night of no moon, every month on the 30th of the month, uh, and then feed them through a ritual, their ancestors would cease to exist. This was called the kispum. This was a central part of Amorite religion. You had to take care of your dead ancestors. If you didn't, they ceased to be, or they would get angry and perhaps come back and make your life a living hell. And even Abraham was worried about this. Well, this seems or to make... to be. Yeah, I mean, this, this makes uh, sense of Abraham's distress at not having a uh, uh, an heir. I mean, he didn't have a an heir to keep his name in remembrance, and so... Uh, all right, I've got Eleazar, uh, who's uh, going to be my, my <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 
But what's interesting is that a scholar by the name of um, uh, Nicholas Wyatt, who's uh, I've read a lot of his stuff because he's, again, just a, a wonderful researcher, wonderful scholar, um, professor emeritus from the University of Edinburgh. He'd be a rock star for, you know, me. I'd, you know, can I give your autograph, sir? Um, <laughs> he he argues that Eleazar is not of Damascus. OK, uh, that Eleazar, that there was a, a what, what they call a scribal gloss in a later manuscript, a scribe translating or rather copying the older texts, you know, to preserve it, didn't understand what a certain phrase meant. And so changed it, changed um, to, to ha damasek, which is uh, of the Damascus, uh, changed the, the term, which actually is, uh, let's see, uh, bene, bene mesek into uh, bene ha damask or something like that. Anyway, uh, it would really help if I could read or speak Hebrew. The point is that the original text, according to Dr. Wyatt, probably read, um, because the, the Abraham's saying, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, I don't have an heir, so Eleazar is the son of the cup, is my son of the cup. Now, what, what does that mean? The ritual that the Amorites had to perform every month involved the oldest son of the family, the heir to the family fortune, performing this ritual every month on the 30th night of the month. You know, no moon, darkest night, the veil is thinnest. You've got to summon all the dead ancestors to the ritual meal, summon them by name. You take the teraphim, those are those household idols that uh, Jacob's wife Rachel stole from her father Laban. You feed them by smearing bread on the face of the statues. That's how you would feed the ancestors. And then you would pour out a drink offering. You would pour out a libation on the floor. And um, in many Aborite homes, the dead were buried under the floor of the house. And in many cases, they found them with uh, libation tubes leading right down to the corpse so that uh, they would get the drink, the beer, the wine, the, the, the water. So they took the so this ones for the homies, literal. You know, exactly. like this one's for the homies, you know? Yeah, exactly right. That is exactly right. And they would pour it out. And so yet he was the son of the cup. And that's like, oh, okay. So now we understand why Abraham was so stressed. But this continued down to the time of David. You read in 2 Samuel uh, uh, 18, 18, where David's son Absalom erected a pillar for himself in the Valley of the Kings, for he had no son to keep his name in remembrance. I never noticed that. He put up a pillar pillar with his name on it so people could say oh yes absalom yes we'll remember him on the and that was the uh, that was part of the deal this is known from other similar cultures around ancient israel this is what those were for headstones so, uh, <laughs> still today well, to, to an extent but i mean you know if, if it, it only it only matters if you actually use it in a ritual right right form. <laughs> well even hispanics still do that today like on Halloween, well, yeah. you know? Day of the Dead, right, yeah. absolutely. But think about this. I mean, we had for a couple of summers here in the United States, these protests by these groups that were out on the streets saying, say their name. Yeah. And you'd repeat the name, and after every name, you'd say, Ashe. Well, that's from the Yoruba religion from Nigeria. And I, I did a presentation on this, and it got, it got a... <laughs> It got a conference pulled offline completely, even though I shared the video of the lady who was saying, yes, we understand, we're summoning the dead. You can't say that, though. Even if they say it and you show them saying it, you still can't.
put that out in public, apparently. But that's, that's what it, wrong with when the they're world. done with when they're done with that 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 say the name, Ashe, Ashe, and then they pour out a libation. It is exactly what the Amorites were doing more than 4,000 years ago to summon their ancestors. And this was the culture that produced Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. We're convinced now, and this is what's uh, leading to our next book, the, uh, the Gates of Hell, that this is what led to the destruction of Sodom. We've interviewed the uh, lead archaeologist who's excavating a site northeast of the Dead Sea that... Uh, not only was the site of ancient Sodom, it is the location of the tightest concentration of dolmens in the Jordan River Valley, which are those megalithic funerary monuments that look like big tables made of slabs of limestone. Mm -hmm. um, they were all oriented towards what was the temple in ancient Sodom. We're not sure yet because they've not found any inscriptions who or what was worshipped in this temple, but we think it, we think it was Baal Peor, uh, and peor in Hebrew is a word that comes from a a root that means uh, opening or gap or cleft, like opening to the netherworld. In other words, Baal Peor is Lord of the Gates of Hell, hence the title of the book we're working on. But um, yeah, it's it's this this idea of veneration of the dead, the worship of the dead by the people around ancient Israel, and the fact that the Israelites were drawn into it is uh, really astonishing. Um, as early as the 1930s, there were scholars who said, well, you know, this place where Moses and the Israelites camped, Shittim, which means um, thorns or acacias, uh, was probably this ruined city on the hill that uh, Dr. Stephen Collins and his team have identified, I think, uh, definitively now as Sodom. I mean, Moses and the Israelites camped on the site of ancient Sodom, probably and then began worshiping Baal Peor, Lord of the entrance to the netherworld. It's like, okay, so God destroyed the Tower of Babel because people were trying to reconnect with this old entity, Shemiyaza, who commingled with humanity, taught us stuff we weren't supposed to know, and, oh yes, created the Nephilim, whose spirits... Uh, the spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood were demons who were being worshipped by the neighbors of ancient Israel, then um, destroys the city of Sodom, then Moses and the Israelites come and they start worshipping this, this God, and then God sends a plague that kills 24,000 Israelites. Psalm 106, 28 says the reason God was angry and sent that plague because they worshipped Baal Peor was because they began eating sacrifices offered to the dead. So this, this all fits together. And again, this connects back to Jesus and his own ministry. When we talk about Jesus overcoming death, he's not speaking metaphorically or figuratively. It's a literal war. And this relates to not just his uh, where he chose to ask Peter, who do you say that I am, which was at the base of Mount Hermon, uh, at, in front of the Grotto of Pan, the, the cave that was believed to be the entrance to the netherworld, at the base of the mountain where the god El, who I argue in Second Coming of Saturn is Shemiyaza, um, it, it begins with where Jesus chose to be baptized. You want, you want to give us a teaser on that? I know you had mentioned <laughs> you made a yeah, discovery. Just, you know, drink a water. Here again. <laughs> give this Derek is, a libation. This is, yes, my own <laughs> libation. Pour it down my throat. 
Um, this is something I stumbled onto. Well, I'll, no, I'll give the Lord credit. He he kind of led me to this, and uh, not because I'm so smart or anything. Just it's like, look, if you're going to keep talking about this stuff, let me at least clear up some of your ideas. Um, <laughs> I, I I was reading a paper by a German uh, scholar, and it was about. And it, to me, it seemed unconnected, but sometimes. Well, again, it's got to be the nudging of the Holy Spirit or some, you know, deputy angel who's in charge of kind of prodding me, you know, in the right direction um, on the location of the place where John the Baptist was doing his work. And scholars for the last 2000 years, Christians have been trying to find the place where John was baptizing, the place where Jesus was baptized. John chapter one, beginning at verse 19 um, John, the uh, the apostle, writes, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the... Well, okay, you, you've heard the story. Um, he basically says, uh, He's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Verse 28 is the money quote. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, across the Jordan is the key phrase. That means east of the Jordan River. The only Bethany that anyone has ever heard of in the Holy Land is on the Mount of Olives, which is quite a ways west of the Jordan River, so it's not that Bethany. It's Bethany, some other Bethany. As early as the second century, the early church father Origen tried to find it, said nobody here has heard, any, heard of any place named Bethany. We don't know where it is. So he came up with some other location. Uh, in the 19th century, an explorer for the Palestine Exploration Fund named Claude Condor, who was a colleague of Charles Warren's, uh, Warren was the one who climbed the summit of Mount Hermon and found that stela inside the temple on the summit. Making yeah, that was amazing. Warren, yeah. Warren, yeah. Well, Condor was an associate of Charles Warren. <laughs> and in 1877, he said he, he, he thought he'd figured out where Bethany was. The Greek manuscript, the Greek New Testament in, of John, uh, in, in the Greek, the word is Bethania, Bethania. He believed, and uh, you can actually even find this now in the Faith Life Study Bible notes, that it's probably a reference of, to, to the Greek name Batania. Batania is the Greek form of Bashan. So Whoa. unlike what we've been taught... <laughs> Unlike what we've been taught, and, you know, even though the United Nations has declared a World Heritage Site in the south down near Jericho, okay, this is Bethany across the Jordan, <coughs> uh, which really ticked off the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority because they wanted the tourists on their side of the river. Yeah. Um, no, it was north of the Sea of Galilee, Bashan across the Jordan. And it's like, well... Okay, that makes sense, because when you continue on in the Gospel of John, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So Jesus is right there, and then he begins, Jesus begins calling his disciples. And the first disciples he calls, Philip, Nathaniel, Peter, they're all from Bethsaida, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. So why are we looking for Bethany down near Jericho when Jesus the next day is calling his disciples north of the Sea of Galilee? Now here's the and other. What's really bit. crazy too, man, is I, I just thought of this. You know how 
you know, baptism, you know, is spiritual warfare anyway, because these fallen angels are put in, you know, the abyss, the waters underneath, and, you know, and they're imprisoned there and they're denied resurrection. They're denied yes. forgiveness. But us, when we die, we are lowered into Sheol, which, you know, the, the abyss, the water. So therefore, when you're getting baptized, you're brought under the water and but you were raised back up in Christ, and it and for that to take place in Bashan, yeah, it's like a slap in the face. You know, it's like you know it, you it get is. to watch all these other you know little meaningless humans that you tricked and deceived for all these years. You don't get to see them resurrect, and you just have to watch, and you're denied. <laughs> well, exactly, and, and Peter even mentions that First Peter three, where Jesus goes down and proclaims to the spirits in prison. But when you look at Bashan, that region between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon, <laughs> excuse me, is ancient Bashan. And it is covered with dolmens, just like those, the areas around the base of, uh, of uh, ancient Sodom, you know, these uh, funerary monuments for the cult of the dead. Uh, I, I've done an entire presentation on this. In fact, I'm going to go into this for the uh, Skywatch TV virtual conference coming up in November. Um, you look at a map of the dolmen sites in Bashan, and uh, there are so many clustered so close together, just north of the Sea of Galilee, in this area around Bethsaida and the region between there and uh, the Hula Marsh. Uh, it, it is, it's a giant necropolis. It, it literally is a giant necropolis. One, one Israeli archaeologist says, you can no longer use the term dolmen field because we can't tell where one ends and the next one begins. They're just all over the place. There are 25,000 dolmens in the Jordan Valley and on the Golan Heights. Oh I mean, they're all, over the, they're all over the earth, but there are more of them in Israel closer together than anywhere else on earth. And that yeah, I region map with, them lit up with red dots. I mean, it was crazy how clustered they were. Right. Well, here's the thing. Matthew, in, in Matthew chapter 4, kind of puts the... Uh, the pieces together here. Um, of course, we know that after Jesus was baptized, he gets taken out and uh, <coughs> tempted by Satan. Um, Matthew 4, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Now, where would that be? Anywhere near Israel. Yeah, Mount Hermon. Mm -hmm. And showed him all the kings of the world and all their glory and said, all these kingdoms I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Um, and of course, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. But then in verse 12 of Matthew 4, Jesus begins his ministry, quoting now, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Capernaum is near Bethsaida. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, very close to where the Jordan comes into the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, that's the Roman road, the Via Maris, that runs from uh, Egypt up uh, alongside of the uh, Sea of Galilee uh, through Tiberias and then go continues on uh, to Damascus. The one God told the Israelites to avoid lest they turn yeah. back in fear. Right. Yeah. Uh, the way of the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, again, east of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, money quote, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus moving to that region of Bashan, 
fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now think about this. Is wow. that area, the Jordan River Valley between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee, is that the valley of the shadow of Lord death? Of yes. That is amazing. With dolmens all through it. And these dolmens, again, look like massive tables, two massive slabs of, of limestone with a tabletop across the top. What does Jesus do for us? Our good shepherd in the valley of the shadow of death, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Like, oh, man. Oh, yeah. Credit to Karen <laughs> for that one. That was so. This is literal. This is a literal war against the dead wow. and against those who created the dead the sons of God who Jesus proclaimed victory over when he descended to the, to the prisoners, uh, to the abyss after his uh, crucifixion. I'm going to have to listen all over this, all over again, just so it blows my mind. I'm just, it's, it's, it's my blowing face me hurts. away. I know. I'm smiling so much. I know. It's I'm blowing like, yes, me away. Yes. I mean, isn't, isn't this exciting? I mean, you read oh, it. It's yeah. like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, moments like that is why I do this. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, thank you, God. Wow, that is, that's unbelievable. Would well, you guys got anything that I, you had? I think. I know you're getting short on time, Derek, but I, one last thing. Uh, the uh, the day the earth stands still, I think that is so relevant right now with all <laughs> the UFO phenomena. Uh, your take on all this ufo stuff that we're seeing now the government's all of a sudden telling us all about it you know and disclosure yeah disclosing all this stuff or what are we getting prepared or prepped for here in your opinion well the enemy's throwing as many deceptions at us as they can uh they don't care what we believe as long as it's not the the one thing that's true so um yeah i think that uh, they're, they're trying to put together a scientific deception to convince those who are looking for a Star Trek future that our space brothers are just about here and they're finally going to reveal themselves to us and help us uh, evolve or transcend or whatever. I mean, if, if we believe that our, uh, our ancestors, that the God or the gods of our ancestors were simply just aliens with more advanced toys, well, then we can develop those toys and we can become just like them. Ye shall be as gods. That's really all it's it is. The it's, same trick. Same trick, just uh, played uh, in, in a slightly different way. Uh, it's it's a, a variant of the transhumanist movement, really. Yeah. This idea that we will somehow overcome death through technology. What people don't realize is that without unregenerate hearts, um, if we were to live forever, this world would not be heaven on earth. It would be hell on earth. And I wondered if the whole transhuman you know, movement is what it was talking about in Revelations when it says, and they will seek death and will not yeah. find them. Yeah. They'll get what they want, but it ain't going to be what they thought it was. <laughs> no, no. And what's really interesting, though, is when they say uh, they will seek death, uh, just remember death, Thanatos, is the rider on the pale horse. Mm -hmm. it's, we're not a state of being. You're talking about a literal entity. Gosh. So what we're dealing with is not extraterrestrial, but extra-dimensional. Yes. Yes, that's crazy. You know, and I always look back to Ronald Reagan, you know, back in, it was 1987. He says, perhaps we need some outside universal threat 
to make us recognize this common bond. He said, I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. You know, I think it's all, uh, you know, leading to the the great reset, new world order. Smoke and mirrors. Bring us all together and, and, you know, just like your latest book, you know, the the return of the golden age. Who's going to argue of a lifetime of peace and everyone getting together and it's going to be all kumbaya. Come with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dawning of the age of Aquarius. Yeah. Gosh, it's crazy. Which is really what this is. uh, Yeah. What the, uh, the, uh, the occultists and the, uh, the adepts think that uh, this is what is, what we're on the verge of the, uh, the great conjunction on the winter solstice back in 2020, when Jupiter and Saturn met in the night sky that uh, signaled the uh, full entry into age, the age of Aquarius, which is ruled by the planet Saturn, who, uh, again, Saturn represents the, uh, this old entity, Shemiyaza, the uh, leader of that rebellion, who uh, uh, is promising a return to a golden age. But, uh, boy, it's not going to look that way when he comes out of the abyss in Revelation 9. No, no. Thankfully, we don't have to be here for it. Yeah. And I'm all for that. <laughs> yeah, we we can watch from the sidelines. <laughs> well, Derek, I don't know if you'd like to tell us a little bit about um, where people can find your information, your books, um, Skywatch TV, anything else that you'd like to sure. to let us know. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I do the daily news updates for Skywatch TV. Not really news updates, more like news commentary and analysis. Uh, is, it's basically just trying to put a, uh, a biblical worldview on what's happening in the world around us, which uh, given what's happening in the world around us today, I mean, this uh, event earlier this week with the destruction of those uh, Nord Stream gas pipelines between Germany and, and Russia, I, I think that's really ominous. Um, it, it, it just feels to me, and I, I, could, I could be wrong, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in geopolitics, but uh, it just feels like we're creeping incrementally closer to a world war here. So just pray that the cooler heads prevail. But um, yeah, that w- you can find all of those uh, those updates at uh, skywatchtv.com. Sharon and I, all of our stuff is at gilberthouse.org. We've got a, uh, a mobile app, which gets all of our video content, our weekly uh, programs, Unraveling Revelation and Sci Friday, my weekly podcast, A View from the Bunker and uh, our audio Bible study, plus our old podcast episodes. As I have time, I'm going back and uploading the old archives of A View from the Bunker and the PID Radio going back to 2005. So uh, um, lots and lots of, I mean, literally, we've got like a couple thousand hours worth of content out there uh, in various places that we're trying to put into our our mobile app, which is, uh, again, it's available for free and linked at our website, gilberthouse.org, where we uh, have a store and uh, you can get our books and uh, videos there. And we look forward to seeing you. Me and uh, me and Stephen got tickets to, uh, to come up to the spiritual warfare uh, conference. Oh, great! Uh, look forward to that. So yeah, we, we look forward to seeing you guys. And uh, we're bringing you you and Sharon a shirt. So you got to let us know your shirt size. We're gonna get oh, you a shirt. Awesome! Awesome! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just hope she starts feeling better soon. Yes. And I'm glad you're on the mend. Well, appreciate that. Yeah, still got a few days yet. Still hacking and coughing and. Uh, so hopefully, uh, hopefully on the downside, uh, downhill side of this, but, uh, yeah, Sharon's probably got a few more days, but yeah, well, Taylor, we'll be praying for, and like, well, like we that. said, thank you for taking the time to, you know, talk with us and enlighten us. And I, we thoroughly enjoy oh, it. Yes. Yeah. We yes. hope to have you back for some more discussions. We can do this and for a week. Sharon too. I'd love to talk oh, to yeah, Sharon. Sharon. Yeah. 
Well, we'll hopefully we can make that happen. Yeah, get the two of us on together, and we can uh, you know just turn over the show and just let us run with it. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm cool with that. Uh, Derek, thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Uh, thank you for tuning in and uh, keep on digging. We thank you for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Questions, comments, or future episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you at the Dig Four Two Three at Gmail dot com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at The Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. you got to dig.